Welcome to the Bethel Podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to spend time in God's Word. We hope that today's message blesses you and lifts you. Matthew chapter 4 is where you can turn to today in the presence of the Lord. I'd like to talk to you for just a little bit of time and really talk about Satan's tricks and God's triumph. Satan's tricks and God's triumph. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to begin in verse number 1. Don't you love God's Word? Do you ever think what life would be like if we didn't have it? We'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? It just has such a unique ability to answer every single question of life. And I'm so thankful for it. In Matthew chapter 4, verse number 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It's also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you, he said, if you would bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended to him. If I can talk to you today just for a moment of time and uh, encourage you in your faith, because how many know that this journey of faith will not last forever? There's coming a day, it could be sooner than later, that we will be done with this journey of faith and we'll be on the next place, wonderful place that God has for us in a, in a wonderful land called heaven. And in this time, there are, there are tricks that the enemy brings to us. There are pitfalls. There are roadblocks that come. And and the one that we see here is one that not only Satan uses on people today, but he he had so much confidence that he tried to use it on Jesus himself. And the first point that I'd like to make to you today as a believer in Jesus is that Satan doesn't tell you what to do. You tell Satan what to do. You don't have to put up with his nonsense. You don't have to put up with his lies. As a believer in Jesus, you don't have to put up with his schemes and his strategies. He doesn't tell you what to do. You tell him what to do. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid a price so that we would have authority over all the power of the enemy. And honey, that means all the power of the enemy. Every sickness, every disease, every track, trip, track, trick he tries to use, You have victory over it. When the devil tells you you're a victim, you can tell him, no, I'm not. I'm more than a conqueror through Christ who loved me. When he says things will never get better, say, no, all things work together for good. When he says you're always going to struggle in sin, you can tell him sin shall not have dominion over me. When he says no one loves you, he says not even God loves you. You could tell him John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. So you tell the devil what to do and don't let him do the same to do you to you. Now, it wasn't that Satan was attempting to get Jesus to use his power as God. He was trying to get Jesus to see his identity and what he does 
and not who he is. So who I am is not what I do. Who I am is who I am to him. Let me say that again. I don't want to lose you. Who I am is not what I do, but who I am is who I am to him. And one of the biggest slippery slopes we'll ever try, try to live is when we try to base on who we are based on what we do. The thing is, is you can base yourself on being a Paul player and things are going good as long as you win, but then when you start losing, if your identity is tied up in that, you can tie your identity up in being a mother, but when things are going great as a mother, you're going to be on top of the world. But when things start going down as a mother, as they usually normally do, you're going to be down there as well. And it goes to every other area of life. If you, if you base who you are based on what kind of student you are, what kind of businessman in, what kind of parents you are, it's always going to be a slippery slope. But thank God who I, who I am is not based on what I do, but it's based on who he is. Listen, on the days I'm on top of the mountain, can I tell you who I am is because of Jesus. The days I'm in the bottom of the pit, who I am is still because of Jesus. The day I hit it right in sermons, it's, it's, it's wonderful because it's because of who Jesus is. The days that I miss it as a sermon, can I tell you, it's really not dependent upon that. It's dependent upon what Jesus has already done for me for dying on the cross. I like how Paul says it. He says, you are complete in Christ. And that's some good news. Playing athletics growing up, I always did this. When, I mean, and I put my, my identity in, in whether I won or lost. And when I won... I mean, I had all the answers to all the questions in life at 14 years old. When I lost, I didn't have a clue what was going on. When I won, I could tell everybody what they needed to do. When I lost, I didn't have a clue what to do myself. But I thank God that who I am is not based on what I do. And who I am is based on not what I accomplish. Who I am is based on what Jesus did for me for dying by dying on the cross, shedding his blood, and purchasing a place for me in heaven. You are complete, whether you have a boyfriend or not. You are complete whether you get A's or C's. You are complete if your bank account has zeros in it or if it has thousands in it. Thank God that who I am, I'm complete in Christ. Now, let me just say this because I know that the enemy is going to try to beat people up with this because he tried to beat Jesus with, with it, up with it. But let me move on with you. Go to verse number 4. And so he starts telling, Satan starts telling Jesus, look, this is what you need to survive. You need bread. And Jesus didn't take that. Jesus said, let me tell you what people need to survive. He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. That's good for me and you today because what makes Christians like me and you excel today is not food, but the word of Almighty God. Tell you, that causes you to triumph and go over things that you could never go over in your own. You're talking about reading the Bible, aren't you, preacher? You're talking about studying the Scriptures. I'm not just talking about reading the Scriptures. I'm talking about doing what the Bible says. There's a difference. I said it's not just about reading the Bible. It's about doing what it says. You know why you're doing so good as a Christian? Because you begin to live your life according to what the Bible says about being a Christian. You know why you're doing good at being a parent? Because you're doing good at reading what the, doing what the Bible says about being a parent. You know why you're a good businessman? It's because, are y'all following me because I can do this all day long. It's because you've learned the principles in the Bible about what it takes to be a good businessman. Everything that we do is God, uh, God grows us and develops us. It's because we begin to live our life just like that book says. The reason you've gotten better. You know why you've gotten better as a spouse? 
Because you've learned to do. The Bible says it like this. John 17, 17, 17 says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. I like that word sanctify because it means getting better. Getting better. That's what the word sanctified means. In other words, what gets me better, according to Jesus, is that his word and the truth of God grows me and develops me and makes me into the person I want to be. You want to be a better husband? Man, get in that book and do what it says. You want to be a better believer? Get in that book and do what it says. You want to be a better worker? Get in that book and do what it says. You want to be a better son or a daughter? Get in that book and do what it says. You want to be a better businessman, a better worker on your job? Get in that book and do what it says. I've been to all the, you know, when you go to work, they always have those uh, classes you take to make you a better worker. I'm waiting for the day when a manager steps up and says, today we're going to read the book of Proverbs. Today we'll be in the book of John. Put down that book about how to win friends and influence people. Put down that book about how to make more widgets and sell more widgets. But let's pick up the Bible and see what God has to say about how we can be better and sell more widgets. I look forward to that day. And my friends, I want you to know something. When we talk about the Bible and the Word of God, it's not just something we just say just because. It's because of all the things, all the exercises you do in life. It's the one that will add the most benefit to your life and to my life. Can I just... Your kids are old enough to read the Bible. If they're going to study English and they're going to study math and you're not going to take no for an answer when you ask them to do that, you can expect them to read their Bibles and trust that God will do something in the middle of it. Listen, I just saw Justin Smith back there. Do you love JBQ, Justin? Because it's the Word of God. And we got four-year-olds learning the Word of God. We got five-year-olds learning the Word of God. We got 12-year-olds who are about to be teenagers learning the Word of God. And the thing is, of all the things that they do, Justin, if they play ball or if they are involved in activities, of all the things that's going to last them, not just through this life, but all of eternity, it's the Word of God we put in them through Junior Bible Quiz. Matthew chapter 4, verse number 6. As the story goes on, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for as written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that, the, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Takes them to the highest point of the city, which would have been the temple. And to kind of give you an idea of how tall the particular uh, building was, how many have ever seen the Simmons Bank building in downtown Little Rock? Okay, that's not it. The state capitol. If you've ever seen the state capitol, it's about 200 feet tall. That's about the size of what Satan was asking Jesus to jump off of. He said, if you jump off that, and what would happen? And what he was saying, he said, God will send his angels to bear you up. So what was going to happen at the temple where people were? It was going to be this big, spectacular, wonderful experience. Satan was going to jump off the top of the, of, of, the, of the temple, and then the angels would bear him up. In other words, he'd be suspended midair, and all these people would wonder and be in awe of what God had done. That was Satan's idea. And so you say, well, what was wrong with that? Because the wrong guy made the suggestion. Don't put yourself in personal jeopardy to prove the Scriptures. Demanding that God will move will cause trouble to those who do that. Listen, when you tell God how to be God, he doesn't take very kindly to that. And for God, and for, for him asking Jesus to jump off there to prove that he was the Son of God and put himself in jeopardy, can I tell you that Satan still does that today? Let me tell you a couple stories. There was a, a minister 
when he was a younger, pre- younger preacher, he went to a retreat. And the retreat was right, right by a river. And the students, it was a student retreat. And as these students got to worshiping God and praising God, they really got, they, they, they thought their faith was growing. And so three of them went out to the river and said, if the Bible says that Peter walked on the water, then in Jesus' name, we can walk on the water as well. And they walked on the water, and guess what happened? All three of them drowned and died. True story. See, the thing is, is Jesus didn't tell everybody to walk on the water. He told Peter to walk on the water. And when we try to prove our faith, when we try to prove our walk with God by putting ourselves in personal jeopardy, it's the exact same thing that he was asking, asking Jesus to do that particular day. He was putting God to the test to cause trouble. A lady that I went to church with, sat in the church office and talked with her, came one day and she said this. She just had been diagnosed with breast cancer. The size of the cancer was the size of a pinhead at the time. And she said these words. She said, I, I believe that God's going to heal me. And I said, amen. She said, I know that God's, God's going to touch my body. And I said, amen. She said, I'm not going to a doctor. I'm not going to any health care. I'm not doing any chemo. God's going to heal me. Y'all, just within a little amount of time, that pinhead size cancer turned into the size of a hand. She died and she went to heaven. See, because the thing is, is I can't tell God how to heal me. I just know that God heals and when I try to tell God how you're going to do what I want you to do, can I tell you, it's the same tactic that Satan uses to try to get Jesus off of his game in this particular day. Putting God to the test will cause dr- tr- trouble. God, I'm going to take this job, and I don't care what you say about it. God, I'm going to date this person, and I don't care what you say about it. God, I'm going to do these particular things, start this business, and, and I'm just asking you to bless it. My friend's still telling God what you're going to do and asking him to bless it. Go ahead and take a, save yourself a step and just ask him first what you, he wants you to do. Are you with me? Sometimes we can walk on dangerous ground. When we begin to tell God the things that he's going to do and we put ourselves in jeopardy, there was a time where people had, the Bible says that they can take up snakes and drink poison. And there were groups of people to prove how faithful they were. They would take up snakes and they would drink poison. They are no longer with us today either. Because sometimes it didn't matter how much faith you have. Listen to me. Sometimes it didn't matter how much you pray. Sometimes God says no. And he has the right to say that. It's why we compare Scripture to Scripture. It's why we compare Scripture to Scripture. We don't just take one Scripture, read it, and build a whole doctrine around it. we got to compare the whole counsel of God. Are you with me? Let me say this, you can read one scripture and think that's the way God does things, but there are sometimes we have to read line upon line and precept upon precept, and you have to know the whole scriptures. Let me give you an example of this. There are those that say today, there's no place for a woman preacher, no place in a church for a woman preacher. And they'll take the scripture that Paul says, that I did, that Paul says I don't have a woman to teach a man, but if we take that scripture by itself, once again, it does the same thing Satan tries to do as he tries to twist it. That's why you have to have the whole counsel of God. In the Old Testament, there were prophetesses. Deborah was one of them. In the New Testament, the Bible says about Philip, he had four daughters who prophesied. Honey, that means he, they preached. There were pastors in the New Testament who were females. So when we take that, I believe most of the men in the New Testament that were ministers were males, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't use women as well. I think sometimes there's a place where a man hadn't done his job and answered the call, so God had to get a woman to do his job again. So do you understand what I'm saying? we got to compare Scripture to Scripture. I always think it's funny. They say things like this. Well, you know, we can have women in church teach. They just have to teach the kids. We have women. They can just teach the youth. 
They can teach each other. But let me tell you, God has used many, many mighty women of God to declare the gospel and preach the gospel around this world. And I believe in the days ahead, he's going to find some more women full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, to preach the gospel to whosoever will. Some of you here, maybe God's calling you to speak. God's calling you to a, a ministry where you preach the gospel. Don't let some devil-sitting, pew-sitting devil talk you out of it. And then not only that, but he tried to get God to do something spectacular to prove his love for us. He tried to get Jesus to do something spectacular to prove who he was. Listen, God doesn't have to do spectacular, entertaining stuff to prove us that he's God. He doesn't. Satan always wants that to happen. That's why the religious leaders were always saying, show us a sign. Do something marvelous. Wow us. Entertain us. But my friends, God doesn't have to entertain or wow. Sometimes he does things that are incredibly, and it makes me say, wow. But I don't base my faith on the wow. I base my faith on the word of God. Sometimes a miracle is not in somebody jumping off a building. Sometimes the miracle is just walking, getting up out of bed in the morning. Sometimes the miracle is not in doing something incredibly entertaining. Sometimes the miracle is just realizing all of a sudden you got a pay raise last week. Sometimes God does the miracles in the mundane. He can do the, the, the wonderful things. He can raise the uh, dead. He can open the blinded eyes. He can cause the lame to wake, the, the, to, to walk. But my friend, sometimes God does things that are spectacular that aren't necessarily wonderfully entertaining. Be careful about this Pentecostal people. Sometimes we think if it's not jumping and shouting, it's not God. Sometimes we don't think, man, if the preacher didn't preach, man, we had church. Sometimes God can do something wonderful, and it doesn't have to be the loud. Sometimes it can be a quiet, steady, gentle rain. Sometimes you watch somebody, and they're just being still at the altar. God's doing the greatest miracle of anybody that particular day. Lastly today, and this is the one I really kind of wanted you to, to pay attention to, just because this is Satan's most tantalizing temptation. This is what he does that he tries to lure. He's probably lured more people away with this particular trick than all the others. That's why I believe he used it last on Jesus. He brought out the big guns at the end. He said these words. He said, I tell you what, I'll make you a deal. Let me just say this. If the devil ever says, let me make you a deal, don't take it. All the kingdoms of the world, I've been given authority. And he was partly right. He said, if you'll just fall down and worship me, I'll give them to you. He used power. He used the promise of prestige. He used the, pop, the, the promise of popularity to try to lure the Son of God away. And he does the same thing today. He says things like, isn't it nice to be popular? Wouldn't you like to be more accomplished? Wouldn't you like to walk into a room and people have respect for you? Wouldn't you like people to drive by your house and ooh and ah? Wouldn't you like to pull up to the stop sign and have the nicest car? Wouldn't you like to have in your mantle have that first place trophy right up there? And the devil promises, I can give that to you. I can give that to you. You just have to push aside God. It's the American dream minus Jesus Christ. There is no American dream outside of God. The American dream outside of God is called the American dream nightmare. And the devil's used it today to think of the people. Who, let me just tell you this. The people who are not in church today, they may have bought this particular lie because they've said things like this. They said, oh, I don't go on church on Sundays. I have to rest on that particular day. I don't go to church on Sundays. I have to work on Sunday. What they're saying is this, look, I can gain, uh, I can better myself. 
I can do, I can, I can go higher in my life. If I'll just begin to, to begin to, to push aside the things of God and get a better education and better skills so I can go higher, and I don't need God to do that. Listen, if you've got to, you got to gain something in this world to, and push God out in the, in the meantime, let me tell you, friend, run from that as well. Jesus even said it like this. He said, if you, he said, look, if you seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, God said, I'll add all those things to you. You get both of them. But the thing is, is the kingdom of God is one, the kingdom of Satan is one where he tries to tell you, you don't need God to get all that. And people many times have, have fallen hook, line, and sinker for that lie that Satan uses. I want to read to you this. In 1923, nine of the wealthiest people in the world met at Chicago's Edgewater Beach Hotel. The combined wealth was estimated to be more at that time than all of the wealth of the government of the United States of America. Nine men met together at a little powwow, and their combined worth was more than all of the, of the U.S. government at that particular time. In the meeting, I'll give you some, the men, there were nine men. One of them was the president of the largest steel company. One of them was the president of the largest utility company. One of them was the president of the largest gas company. One of them was the president of the New York Stock Exchange. One of them was the president of the Bank of International Settlements. One of them was the greatest wheat speculator, commodity trader of that day. One of them was the greatest investor on Wall Street of that day. One of them was the head of the world's greatest monopoly. And one of them was a member of President Harding's cabinet. All met together. Within 25 years, history tells us this is what's happened to each one of these men. President of the largest steel company, Bethlehem Steel, Charles Schwab, lived on borrowed money until he died, and he died bankrupt. President of the largest gas company, Howard Hudson, he went insane, went crazy. The greatest wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, he died insolvent. In other words, he didn't have anything when he died. President of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, he was sent to jail. Member of President Harding's cabinet, Albert Fall, was pardoned from jail just to be able to go home and die in peace. The greatest bear on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. So did the president of the world's greatest monopoly. So did the president of the Bank of International Settlement, Leanne Frazier. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insult, Insult, excuse me, he died penniless. See, the thing is, these men learned how to make a living, but they didn't learn how to make a life. And that's the thing. That's what Satan was telling Jesus. Look, I'll give you the life. You're going to be the king. You're going to be the ruler of the world. But I'll give it to you, and you don't even need God to get it. And here's the, here's the, here's the biggest part of this. Here's the biggest kicker of all this. He said, he said this. He said, Jesus, you can have all the kingdoms of the world. You can have all the, 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 the prestige, and you know you're going to be king anyway. He said, but you don't have to go to the cross to do it. That's the little tricky part that he didn't mention. I'll give you the kingdom. You're king of kings and lord of lords. You're the son of God. But here's the thing. You don't have to go to the cross to do it. You don't have to suffer to do it. You don't, have to, you don't need to go through all that pain just to do it. Let me just say this, and this is where we'll begin to close. You can't really feel, fulfill your purpose in life without going through some pain. I would love to stand up here and tell you, Everything is roses. I would love to stand up here and tell you as a believer, you don't ever have to worry about somebody talking ugly about you. You don't ever have to, ever have to worry about being persecuted. You don't ever have to worry about going through tough times and sickness and hardship and death of loved ones. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't. Because if I did, it would be doing the exact same thing Satan was trying to tell Jesus. 
And that's that you can go through life without any kind of hardship. I, I put in my notes, you're probably not going to get excited. Anyone offers you a gospel that doesn't speak of any trouble, they're giving you a satanic gospel. That sometimes it doesn't matter how good your faith is, sometimes tough times happen. Doesn't matter sometimes how much you pray, sometimes the wrong thing happens, or at least in our minds. Sometimes it doesn't matter how holy you are or committed to God, sometimes bad things just happen. It's one of the questions that people ask today. It's probably the most asked question. Why, do, why does a good God allow bad things to happen? And the answer to that is the same thing Satan tried to give to Jesus. See, the thing is, is we want a world where we don't have to pay the penalty of sin. And the bad things in this, in this world that happen, my friend, they are the result of sin. And not God's sin, but my sin and our sin. And to have a gospel that doesn't have to deal with that, it's the reason that Jesus came to this world to save people from their sins. It doesn't matter how much money is in the, in, in the bank. It doesn't matter what the world does to solve all its problems. The biggest problem in the world that you and I face is not out there in the climate. It's right here on the inside of a man's heart. And it's called sin. And the only remedy, the only solution is Jesus Christ's death upon the cross. And thank God Jesus had enough foresight to know I have to go to the cross because to save people from their sins, it's going to take a sacrifice that only I can give. It's real simple. Jesus said this. He said, and he came back with the word. He said, he told him to worship God. He said, it's been said, worship God and worship him alone. Worshiping God through hardship, I think, is the greatest act of faith you'll ever see. Worshiping God, holding that loved one's hand, by their bedside, knowing they're about to slip away into eternity. I think that's the greatest act of faith or a sign of faith you'll ever see in this life. Trusting God when everything around you seems to be falling apart. Having joy in your heart when you see things that seems like the world is spinning out of control. The greatest act of faith, I believe, is, is what Jesus said, is in the midst of my hardship, in the midst of my tough times, in the midst of my heartache, still worshiping and praising God. So I want to know today, is that you did you come here and you're just carrying burdens in your life that almost are overwhelming? Are you carrying in your life things and hardships that just is part of life? Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's crazy kids. Maybe you're, uh, somebody that you loved left you. It could be a host of different things. But I want to ask you the question, can you worship God in the midst of your hardship? Come on, stand up with me this morning. Hallelujah. Go ahead and start right now. Come on right now. Just lift your hands and begin to praise and bless the name of Jesus. The Bible says, for our light affliction is but for a moment. It's but for a moment. What you're feeling, what you're experiencing right now, it's just but for a moment. In the grand, in the grand scheme of life, it's just a breath. It's just that much right there. So why don't you go ahead and write where you are. Just begin to bless God and thank God and begin to worship him just like Jesus said. Worship him and worship him alone. I'll go to the cross. I'll go through my pain. I'll go through my suffering, but I'm going to worship Jesus in the meantime. Come on, bless him right where you are. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Come on, thank you, Jesus. Come on, thank him in the midst of my financial hardship. Thank you, Jesus. In the midst of my children being away from God. Come on, thank you, Jesus. Come on, somebody get this on the inside of them. Somebody get this on the inside that the devil does not want you to worship God. The devil does not want you to get a hold of this. He wants you to 
try to find another way to get to your promised land. But today, hallelujah, I just pray that you'll give him a heart attack. And let the devil know that I, even in the midst of my hardships, I can praise God. I can praise God. I can praise God. I can bless the name of the Lord. And right now, I'm asking you to do one more thing. In just a moment, we're just going to open these altars up. And I'm going to ask you to come. You can kneel at one of these places. You can come and stand. But if you've got a hardship, no matter how big or how small it is, you've got a trial you're facing. You know what I'm talking about, trials and hardships. Got money problems, tribulations, relationship problems, problem with the boss at work, doesn't matter how big or small it is. I wonder if you just come and bring it to God. Just come and bring it to God. Come on, are you ready? Come on, let's go. Thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that it challenges you to dig deeper into the Word of God and grows your faith. If you would like to reach out to us, please visit our website at www.mybethel.net. Thank you.